0: This week, suicide bombers attack London on July 7th, 2005, killing 53 people and wounding another 700 as members of New Scotland Yard's anti-terrorism branch race to investigate this attack and prevent a future one. Welcome to Game of Crimes. Hey everybody, Morgan Wright here. Welcome back to the next episode of Game of Crimes, and I am here literally, well we say literally, here with my partner in crime. The best looking member of this duo, Steve Murphy, but you can call me Murph. And since we're on a podcast, you have no way of proving he's the better looking one. So <laughs> look it up. Look it look up. Look it up. Yeah, look well no, don't look at Boyd Holbrook's photo that played him in Narcos. Whoa, look at whoa, the real whoa. Steve hey, Murphy. His name was Steve Murphy for a while. You can look at him if you want to. <laughs> no, nah, hey, don't don't let the good looks fool you there, pal. Hey guys, uh, welcome back. Hey, by the way, uh Steve, I gotta tell you, got a lot of comments about Michelle Linhart. Uh, and just especially from the women, they were like You know, it's great to hear a story. It's great to hear such a success story of somebody who went from, you know, Fargo, born in Fargo, you know, grew up in White Bear Lake, didn't even know what a lottery ticket was, thought fart was a cuss word until she became an adult, and then comes up to lead the DEA. A lady who had to poof up her
1: hair to heat, meet the minimum height requirement. <laughs> poof. Poof the hairy. Eh? You, know? uh, you know what? And the cool thing about Michelle is she's just the sweetest, nicest person in the world. You just don't ever want to make her mad because, you, you know, it's not that she blows up because she told us she only dropped the F-bomb once. But when you upset her, you just feel guilty, like, man, she's the nicest person in the world.
0: Mama Michelle. Don't upset Mama Michelle. Don't make She'll use the guilt trip on you. Mighty Mike. Mighty Mike. (laughs) Well, hey, guys, we hope you enjoyed that. And one way to show us that you enjoyed that is head on over to Apple. Give us five stars. It's magic. It's like Magic Kingdom. It's like David Copperfield. We don't know how it's done, how he walks through the Great Wall of China, does the illusion. We just know, folks, it works. So head on over there really helps us out, gets us up through the charts, and gets more of you players listening to us. Also, head on over to our website, podcast.com. Guess what we will be adding? Murph and I are working on it. Actually, I got some designs to share with you. And Sandy Salvato, our resident mafia queen uh, on our Game of Crimes fan page- is actually put out a little poll out there asking people what they want from a merch standpoint. So, surprise, we will be adding merch here shortly. Well, to talk about surprise. Talk about surprise. I'm a little surprised at some of the <laughs> recommendations that were coming across. I looked at it last night. I'm like, shower curtains? <laughs> safety whistle? <laughs> hey, safety whistle we might do. <laughs> but shower curtains? Yeah, okay. <laughs> Hey, if they want it, we'll see what we can do. Yeah, we'll 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 figure it out. All right, we'll do that. So, uh, but I'll head over there. So we have uh, merch. Uh, you can access our Patreon page from there. We'll talk about that in a second. When we get live events going, it'll be there. Get on our mailing list. We'll notify you when episodes come out. We'll know you notify you of special things. But speaking of Patreon, Steve, this is really starting to blow up. We're starting to get a lot of great people. You, you, our patrons, our patron players that are out there really blowing this thing up. We've got a lot of good stuff coming up. If you're not a member of Patreon, you're missing out already on episode one and two where I interview Murph and JP on the real story behind the real Narcos. And like we said, Steve, right? That's You've never given some of these details to anybody ever.
1: Not at all. This is, this is the most in-depth interviews Javier and I have ever done. Uh, we, You would think it would get redundant after a while, but, you know, when you sit down and really go into it in detail, like we do with Morgan, you start remembering other stories that you haven't told anybody. So it's it's some pretty unique stuff in there.
0: A testament to my interview ability.
1: And, I mean, just, you know, I don't want to give away what we talk about, but you might find out a little bit more about Javier Pena's sex life over there. So <laughs> if you've seen Narcos, you
0: know what I'm talking about. <laughs> it's, it's about as active as Pedro Pascal's, I think, is. Well uh, yeah, he's still single, so he's he's that probably doing be, okay. Yeah, no way, well we're not gonna go there, but hey, head on over there too. So we got some great stuff coming out too. We've got our QA that we just put out. We've got um the Narcometer, the patented one-of-a-kind Narcometer where Steve and I take uh, your favorite show, TV series, whatever that relates to law enforcement, could be Breaking Bad, could be Beverly Hills Cops, whatever, we run it through the Narcometer and rate it on a scale of one to 10 kilos on three categories, so you'll have to sign up to see what's going on over there. And if you just want to support us one time, go to paypal.com, use our email, podcast at gmail.com or paypal.me slash Crimes, whatever makes it easier for you to spend money On us two dudes. Yes. So we don't have to eat cat food. I'm getting old. And you're moving to Florida, too. That was the surprise I forgot to talk about last time. You actually, you got your house sold. We did. We're going to be homeless here soon. You Uh, know, and we've got a realtor
1: looking down there and, and... we spoke to her yesterday she's like uh you know what there's like one house on the market in your price range well i thought we could find a mansion for you know twenty thousand dollars down there but what the hell Well,
0: you can if it has wheels on it (laughs) well i've lived in those kind of places before too so it won't be something being from west virginia we had somebody dog me for saying lay off murph and quit dogging west virginia i said yeah not gonna happen pal yeah that's what makes it fun you gotta laugh at yourself Gotta hey, I'm from Kansas, folks. Don't so don't. Tell, I got all the Dorothy and Toto jokes, you know. So don't give me that. West Virginia is about the only state left I can pick on legitimately.
1: Well, and you know, and that's why we do this podcast in individual locations. So I'm in my basement. He's in his house, and we don't get together very often because he is from Kansas. I'm not sure what's going to happen when we go to and meet in
0: person. Yeah, well, you know, we're, we'll find out here. So, <laughs> hey, remember, folks, quick disclaimer, this is a show about crime. We talk about bad people doing bad things and bad people doing bad things to good people. We take the story seriously, but... Never ourselves. We're here to have fun with you. That's right. Well, <laughs> rephrase that again. <laughs> we're here to have fun with you, not have fun with you. <laughs> You're a sick puppy. (laughs) I think you and Sandy come from the same cloth. (laughs) I I need to keep you out of trouble is what I need to do. But you know, as we always do before we get into it, guess what time it is, Murph? Uh, Is it embarrassed Murph time? Well, it's up to you, not me. (laughs) So, here we go. You guys Bring ready? Bring it on.
1: Bring it on here, big Let's boy. Let's get ready
0: for Small, small town, town Police Flutter. Flutter. And boy, do I have a good one today. Oh, boy. Well, look, <laughs> it, it's not a small town. It is a small police force, but it's in our area. It's actually the CIA, Steve, and it's the CIA police force. And this one has just international incident written all over it. So... Mm. A woman was arrested this week after trying four separate times to sneak into the Central Intelligence Agency headquarters in Northern Virginia, which we know is all in Langley there over by McLean, mm-hmm. to speak to Agent Penis. Nope. nope. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think you have to go over there to find that. <laughs> if you want to find some dicks, you don't got to go to the CIA. <laughs> <laughs> Richard. You Richard, met Richard, right? Richard, Richard, Paul, Jim, Mike, Bob, all of the names that those guys <laughs> use, yeah. So it said this criminal complaint described the May 3rd incident involving Jennifer G. Hernandez, 58, from North... She came up from North Carolina. Upon arrival, the defendant provided her Iowa identification card, requested to recover her North Carolina identification card, and requested to speak to Agent Penis. After review of records, Officer Miracle Pena, not related to Javier Pena, who was not Agent <laughs> Penis, determined that CIA police officers has encountered the defendant on several occasions and had cited for her for trespassing... Her last three appearances had been on consecutive days. They warned her to leave. She didn't do it. But guess what, Steve? The old, the moral of the story? The CIA refuses to reveal the uh, true identity of Agent Penis. <laughs> That's got to be Javier. I'm telling you, it's got to be Javier. <laughs> she I needs to, want to go to, speak. to Texas. Hello, I want to speak to Agent Penis. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, so can you imagine being the guard on the gate when somebody comes up and asks that? You know you just bust out laughing. <laughs>
0: You got to maintain that composure. You cannot laugh, you know? (laughs) Well, hey, Steve, here's speaking of laughing at people. So here's another one. This comes out of California. Police are looking for a man who tried to rob a Wendy's. Okay, I mean, that sounds, you know, like something that usually happens while wearing a plastic bag over his head. But here's the funny part the police lieutenant told the paper that the man pulled up to the drive thru window pointed a handgun at the server while wearing the plastic bag and demanded money. The server closed the window and just walked away. (laughs) No respect. No respect. I thought you were going to say that he passed out because he tied
1: the bag around his head. and He couldn't get any oxygen. (laughs) Quick, I've got a cut of my forehead. Hurry.
0: Quick. Put a tourniquet around his neck.
1: Hey, you know what? That reminds me of a story. When I was a city cop back in the seventies in Southern West Virginia, this guy broke into the Wendy's and he did it through the exhaust chute. Well, the fat ass was too big to get down in there, so the next morning, the Wendy's employees come in. They open the restaurant, and they hear this guy calling for help. We had to go get uh, grease and pour down the sides of the exhaust chute to get him to slide on through. Thanks for reminding me not to
0: eat at the Wendy's in Krusty Crotch, West (laughs) Virginia. Oh, my God. Not going there. Well, hey, this next one comes from the no shit category. All right. And this is out of Australia, mate. This is from an Australian paper. All right. An Australian army vehicle worth $74,000 has gone missing after being painted with camouflage. <laughs> oh, come on now. You're making it up. No. <laughs> <It's>... <laughs> 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 They're seeking the public's help to find the four-wheel drive, which was allegedly purloined. Of course, the whole purpose of camouflage is to make it disappear. Oh. It, uh... All our friends in Australia. <laughs> He's making this crap up. No, I can't believe no, it. No, I'm telling you, man. Just like last week, remember? The Icy Hot on the vibrator. We had lots of people oh. on the the uh, fan page talking about that one. The player's page. Not the fan page. The player's page. Hey, but oh. this one. This one. I don't know why, number one, it's in the paper. And number two, if it did occur, how the hell it happened. 3.56 p.m. Dispatch. Report of Swanson chicken pot pie running east on Clay Street. What? That chicken, Oh, no, <laughs> A Swanson Chicken Pot Pie running east on Clay Street. Did the chicken not know he's supposed to be just? Oh, that's that's just weird. I don't, don't even know what to say to that. How the, I mean, what are the circumstances that say oh, I've got a chicken pot pie running? You know, you know, in the area looking for a pot pie. Well, how do you do that? How do you do that?
1: <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, man.
0: Again, small I'll never look town at a pot. police blotter. I'll never look at a pot pie the same way again, though. No. All right. Now it's time for What Year Was It? Oh,
1: here we go. Here we go. This comes
0: just... out of the Whittier News in Whittier, California. So your your mission, should you choose to accept it, Agent Penis, is to <laughs> determine the year. <laughs> okay. All right? So you have to determine what year it was. Was it uh, May fourteenth, nineteen 1937, 47, or 57? So here's the story. Real quick, the police blotter. Police were called on various matters yesterday. The police blotter lists a dog running at large, an escapee from the Fred C. Nell School for Boys having been returned to the school, an unsanitary condition reported at a house on South Milton Avenue, three warrants from Long Beach to be served on Whittier people for traffic violations, an attempt by a man to entice a small girl into his car, and boys playing ball in a vacant lot that broke a window in the house next door. There's also other complaints about uh four sheriff prisoners in the Whittier jail, two charged with being drunk and two held on suspicion of burglary. So were what they, year were was they, it?
1: Were they drunk in the jail?
0: Uh no well no, I think just they being got, drunk in public, you know. TIP. Gotcha. So but anyway, so anyway, so you've got that complaint that a neighbor piled trash, one banner down, two prowler calls. So Steve, what year was it? May 14th, 1937, 47, or 57? It's got to be 57. And you would be wrong. <laughs> oh, damn. This happened, You know what? The hardest part was I was around the World War II era, around the end of it, and there was a lot of stuff about war workers and stuff like that. That would have given it away. So, no, this one was May 14, 1947, out of the Whittier News in Whittier, California. And wow. once again, you whiffed it. I'm wrong.
1: But, you know, just like uh, the past several weeks, I really don't give a shit so let's <laughs> well, hey, I'm dock your,
0: i'm gonna dock your pay for that so. <laughs> hey so uh anyway folks this this next episode is going to be a fun one too because these are two friends of mine um that i met through various things that i used to do and uh these guys were with new scotland yard the anti-terrorism branch which is also referred to as so 15 uh, you when met I was, them at a freaking bar tell the truth well, no, we met at a bar. I didn't meet them <laughs> the first time at a bar. Okay, that's your story, and you're sticking to it. That's my, that's my story. However, there was a story we'll get into that did involve drinking and injury to one of my mates there. So, mm-hmm. uh, but mm-hmm. but I, th- this one is going to be very interesting for a couple reasons. Number one, people think of the London train bombings, July seventh, two thousand five, as being the only incident. It wasn't. It was there was a second set of bombings that happened two weeks later on the 21st, none of those resulted in loss of life, thank God, because the detonators didn't work. And we're, we're going to get the whole story behind that. But the London train bombings, 53 people killed, over 700 people injured. Uh, and I remember, Steve, I was in Mexico at the time, uh, down on vacation. And I, I see this come across the wire. First thing I do is get on the phone and I call my mate, uh, Alan Thomas. And uh, he was a detective sergeant with New Scotland Yard just to make sure, hey, you guys okay, whatever. And of course about a 15 second conversation because these guys are just working and but i think you're going to be impressed with their dedication you know what they did the the things that they saw where they you know some of the crime scenes they went to and my other friend graham burge uh same thing with him. It's about what what they were sleeping at the office. Obviously, all hands on deck. Nobody's going home. So I think you guys are really going to enjoy this. And Steve, I know you know this is this is going to be a two parter uh, because there's actually going to be four of us. So you know this was kind of a complex one to put together because we had we had to uh, do uh, time zones and everything else. But I think everybody's going to dig this.
1: Well, we had to keep Alan and Graham, you know, off the uh, the after five o'clock beverages, if you know what I mean. Uh, but you know what was amazing was, and and not to give away the story like usual, but uh, just them piecing together the yep. evidence to come up with a solution to what the challenges were. It, it's phenomenal. It was,
0: you know, even as a thirty-eight year cop, I was still impressed by what these guys did back then. It was, it's pretty amazing. And I think there's over ten thousand pieces of evidence, if I think I remember right. But you know, the, and you know, so this is going to be amazing. So guys. Uh, this this is going to be a fun one. So we want you guys to just uh, enjoy this. Again, it's going to be a two parter. So again, we'll just uh, we'll lead into it now. Uh, I'll just give you a short uh, outro on this and a short intro on part two. But guys, are you ready to play the biggest game of all, Steve? The game of crimes.
1: Once again, get in, sit down, shut up, and hold on. Bring on the crime.
0: I thought we should kick this off by everybody singing Rule Britannia. Are you guys ready? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and we would do that too because I got two of my good friends. Uh, This is going to be so fun. Steve has no friends, but I have friends. Well, yeah, two of them happen to be... Formerly with, yes, the famed, fabled, infamous New Scotland Yard, my friends Alan Thomas and Graham Burridge. So, gents, mates, welcome to the show. (laughs) Welcome to Game of Crimes. Thank you.
2: Thank
1: you. Hey, just so you know, Morgan, now Graham and I, we got a family connection here, you know, so just
0: be careful. I do have at least one friend. About that Essex thing? No, about the Irish thing. Oh, the Irish thing. Oh, yeah, we're no. going to have to talk about that story, yeah, in a little yeah. bit too, because we, we have a Guinness. Anytime you talk w- about the Irish or the English, we have to have a Guinness story in there somewhere. So,
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, don't yeah. say that
0: like it's a bad thing, now. That's a good it's thing. I'm you know, part Irish too, part Scottish. Part. Yeah. You go back and trace my DNA and my history, and I've been doing the dot com. We have a lot of connections back to England and uh, Scotland. So,
2: yeah. Don't say you want.
0: I think we're,
2: you, all, you hold, I think we're all Celts. We're all Celts, including Alan Thomas. Maybe That's by right. Name, maybe by name only, Thomas. <laughs> <laughs> I'm probably more Celt than you are, Graham. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh, this is going to be fun! And folks, this is the first time we've done uh, had two guests on at the same time. But it was so good because uh, Alan and Graham were partners at New Scotland Yard, and I actually had the chance when I was coming back from overseas. I don't know how I got vetted or allowed to hang out with him, but we had a Christmas party, which we shall talk about later. <laughs> Graham's already hiding because he knows there's yeah. a good story behind us. But hey, before we get started in all of that, it, what we're always interested in when we talk uh, to folks like you have been involved in significant things. And today we're talking about, and actually there's two things involved. It's the train bombings of 7705. But there was a follow-on attempted attack uh, on July 21st, 21705. And that's what we're going to talk about. And both Graham and Alan were just right in the thick of it, um, working with New Scotland Yard. And at that time, you both were uh, what's called SO-15, right? The counterterrorism
3: section? It was was actually SO-13 at the time, the anti-terrorist branch. It changed a couple of years later to SO-15, the counterterrorism command. But it was SO-13 at the time.
1: Was that respect because you guys were getting older or you went up to 15 instead of 13? Yeah. <laughs> no, uh, they,
2: you know, the, the story is we took SO 12 on board and SO 13. So that was the way that the two and the five made 15. So it was <laughs> SO 15. And was 12 dignitary protection, protection of the Royals? No, uh, special branch, special branch. Okay. Yeah.
0: All right. I just want to know. I just want to know if uh, you ever had to pull duty at Buckingham Palace. Uh,
2: I, I did. I did a job at Buckingham Palace once upon a time. Um, I did a. We did a, a tabletop exercise. Me and another guy in the room that uh, the yellow room, and it overlooks the mouth. So as we were in our discussions. It looked right the way down the Mall. So Im- impressive, the palace is an impressive place. We had a private tour as well and saw everything. It, it, impressive. Nice. What about you, Alan?
0: Any tours no, at Buckingham?
3: Uh, Windsor Castle. I worked at, and I also worked on the phone hacking saga. And I was the second person through the door to St James's Palace, uh, but not wow. but not Buckingham Palace.
0: Well, what, let's let's get into that because we, what we want to do is figure out how did you get into policing in the first. So, Graham, you're the senior person on this podcast, I believe. We always want to respect our elders. So. Oh, right, thanks. Okay. Yeah,
2: <laughs> wow, uh, wow. Alan, Alan is not far behind me; just a couple of months. Yeah, but he is behind you. Yeah.
3: <laughs> <laughs> like any good supervisor, ten to fifteen yeah, I'm, I'm feet behind right you. Right behind yeah. you, Graham. <laughs> All the
2: way.
0: Well, Graham, what led you into the uh, Metropolitan Police Service? What were you doing before? What led you to say, "Hey, I want to become a copper"?
2: Um, I I worked. I, I'm from Cardiff in Wales originally, and uh, in the in the late seventies, um, because of the recession, the world recession in steel, I was a, a steel worker. I worked in um, in in the a, a steel mills. Uh, in Cardiff and uh, they shut all the mills down same as what they've done in the states with with uh, the your, your what the rust belt is it where yeah. you know all shut down so they did that there um, and um i was talking to my father one evening over a pint um, and my dad said what are you going to do with the rest of your life and i said i don't really know and he said well um, I had the opportunity many years ago when I was young to join the police force uh, and I didn't do it and maybe that's a career you should have a look at so um, I looked at it and uh, and the rest is history um, I came up and in 1980 February 1980 I joined the Metropolitan Police um, and I was 26 years old and it's been my career ever since and it's given me everything I've got.
0: Well, well, so we'll get into part of that too. Alan, how about you? What was your path uh, into yeah. uh, the London Met?
3: Uh, I was living in the West Country. I was working in an office. I worked for the home office, uh, actually in a prison establishment, and I was bored to death. And a couple of the prison officers said to me one day, why don't you join the police rather than sitting here and wasting your life? Uh, so it sounded like a good idea. I actually applied to join the Royal Hong Kong Police. Uh, mm. And I had a really good interview, but they said they thought I was a little bit inexperienced. And they suggested joining the Met, doing a couple of years in the Met and reapplying. And by the time I got to reapply, they had actually increased their educational qualifications. And I no longer longer had the qualifications necessary. They still interviewed me. And I had a fantastic interview with a policeman who obviously, I think, wanted to recruit me. But... uh, but having said that, uh, I then stayed in the Met, and some of the stories I read about the Hong Kong police <laughs> probably wasn't a bad thing <laughs> in the end, but hey, uh, uh So, yeah, that's really my background.
0: And with some of the yeah, the unrest going on, um, well, let's talk about the application process for the London Met. And what we want to do is also, let's, let's set up first, let's kind of baseline, because, you know, I even had to really get into it and understand how you're organized, the London Met versus, um, you know, and I know what MI5 is and MI6, and we'll talk about that too. But tell us about, um, let's kick off first with you, Alan. Tell us about how the London Metropolitan Police is organized. How much, how far out do they cover? Is it just, you know, the greater London area? Or do you have authority throughout the UK? You know, how is that set up?
3: Uh, It's it's an unusual situation because... The Metropolitan Police Service cover Greater London, with the exception of the City of London, which is a separate entity in the middle of London, known as the Square Mile. And they actually have their own police force. Uh, But for a very long time in the UK, we didn't have any national police agencies. Uh, We now have one called the National Crime Agency. Uh, but for a long time we didn't. Scotland Yard uh, is actually the headquarters building of the Metropolitan Police Service. Uh, traditionally it's where, and when we talk about SO13 and SO15, it stands for specialist operations. It's where all the specialist operations are run from, which is kind of uh, the specialist detective branches and things like that. So... For a long time, the Metropolitan Police Service in Scotland Yard used to kind of have a kind of national responsibility for policing. That has gone. There are some exceptions. Uh, Terrorism is not investigated by the National Crime Agency. They have somebody known as the National Coordinator. And I think it's still the case, Graham, that the National Coordinator was one of the senior MET detectives. Or yeah, senior Met Police Officers. Yeah, correct. So in the early days for instance of forensics and murder investigations, Scotland Yard used to have the expertise and they would be called in by other police forces who had serious crimes and things like that. So in the early days that's where the kind of Scotland Yard thing came from. Uh, but it's, it's the headquarters building of, of the Metropolitan Police Service. Uh, we're on about I think the fourth building now Uh, Originally, it was called Scotland Yard because the original building was in the uh, in the out the back of the Scottish embassy before the United Kingdom uh, existed. So uh, that's what Scotland Yard is.
0: And and Graham, when you when you've uh, you know, let's expound upon that a little bit, too, because there's also the rank structure, you know, within the Metropolitan Police. One interesting thing, and Steve, you know, you and I have talked about this too. It's kind of like strange, like with DEA, you're all just investigators, you know, um, or you'd have the FBI, they're all investigators, even in state police over here, you might have investigation section and then the patrol, the uniform section, but a lot of the command is combined together, right? Graham, in other words, it's like uh, the investigations, the detective constables and the police constables, they all, do they all report up to the same? How's the structure of uh, uniform and investigators work over there?
2: Well, it's if you're at the police station, you normally got uh, now uh, borough commanders. When I joined, you had a, a superintendent who was in charge of the of the of the NIC of the police station. So you'd have on say the the, the ground floor would be the uniform, uh, and then the first floor would be the CID officers so but all all run by the uh superintendent or chief superintendent for that police station, but that police station was in in a division so or a district, so in London we had a uh i i can't remember how many districts going back uh then there was a uh, in 1980 there was a, a lot of districts it got reorganized over the years so you would then have a uh, somebody in charge of that district so you'd have a borough commander who would then um, be responsible for say the five or six or seven police stations that were that were on that division um, now, over time, a lot of police stations have been shut, and it's now um, districts, and you'd have a borough commander for a district now. But then it was it was totally different. It was um, and and then we were a police force, not a police service, as we are now.
1: How many people were there in the uh, you know sworn officers in the Met Police
2: when I joined? I think there were twenty six thousand. Um, wow! And but. There was a um, in nineteen eighty late seventies, early eighties. There was a big recruitment drive. Um, the The money wasn't very good, um, and um, when when Alan and I joined, there was it, it, the the pay was really poor. Um, yeah. and I I think within twelve months of me coming in um there was a, a, a report done by the government um where the pay was increased uh, dramatically uh, but at the same time they, they, you know people weren't joining the police force so um the, the the levels increased as a result and i i think if you could if you could write an essay and do basic maths you could get a job in the police force then <laughs> but, <laughs> well, but, to put it in perspective to put it
1: in perspective, with where I started, I started in a small town in southern West Virginia. We had thirty-five police officers. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> not twenty-six thousand.
2: Yeah.
3: What What population were <laughs> you covering
1: though? Oh, back then it's probably twenty-two thousand, maybe twenty-four thousand. Yeah, we were yeah. eight
3: and a half million. Yeah. So. Yeah, because normally the it, ratio is
0: about one to a thousand, one police officer for a thousand uh, in the community.
3: Yeah. But it's interesting what Graham says though, But but being poorly paid made us very busy because we lived on overtime. Yeah. So, uh, you know, we used to do long hours and we used to go looking for work so that we could actually make <laughs> money. So, right.
0: Um, well, let's let's talk about let's talk about as you applied. So, Alan, tell us about the application process. What's the application process like for the London Mint? And once once you go through your boards, you get hired. Um, let's talk about your training.
3: Yeah, I think we just. Kind of fill the form in uh, we had to I went to Paddington we had a medical and uh, you took a written test and in an interview uh, and if you passed, you were then accepted and you went to the training center at Hendon uh, when I went it was six months of training there and uh that you had to pass exams and various things there. So after you'd completed that six months training, you then got posted as a uniform constable to a police station and you had a two-year probationary period. So you had to go to continuous training. uh, I think it was on a biweekly basis uh, and pass exams during that period as well. So uh, getting in was actually relatively easy.
2: Uh, at that time, it's a, a lot more difficult now. Go ahead, Graham. The the medical was fun, wasn't it? Stand on the two feet, bend over, cough, and then cough. turn around, <laughs> and and that was the med. That was the yeah. medical. So.
0: <laughs>
3: yeah.
2: Check for a heartbeat and breathing. Oh, you're uh, qualified. Yeah. I actually,
3: you had to stand there, stark naked, and yeah, stark cough naked, and bend over right. and stuff. And I actually have a, a color blindness. So I had an additional layer. I had to tell them the color of all these toy cars that they lined up while standing starboard naked. Uh, and I always remember that.
0: How, how, did you, did you, how did you manage to pass the color test then?
3: Uh, I've got a color blindness that's very common in men. Uh, not so common in women, but uh, I, I, I obviously got it right with the cars. Uh,
0: Did you just guess or what?
3: No, no. They they obviously they show you some charts and a couple of the charts I couldn't get. So they then gave me this additional test, and I I could obviously say whether it was red or green or blue. Uh, Okay. So it kind of worked, but uh, yeah, probably stopped me (laughs) being a pilot. How about
0: you, Graham? Were you there stark naked, bending over, yeah, coughing it, too? It,
2: exactly the same. This yeah, sounds like it, a fraternity hazing, not yeah. a police exam. Uh-huh. It, uh, this was, uh, yeah, it was, uh, that, that was the, that was the <laughs> joining the job. That's how you got into the job. And I, I seem to recall the night before you had to write a handwritten um, uh, essay. Uh, and then that was looked at the following day. Uh, and if you'd you done joined up right in, you were all right. You got <laughs>
0: in. <laughs> and, and, and so uh, you came on, you said, in 1980. Alan, when did you come on?
3: Uh, 1977. I know. Wow. I'm that, that, that old guy. You age well. What, what's your
0: secret? <laughs> <laughs>
1: beer.
3: Yeah. yeah, beer,
2: probably.
1: <laughs> and for the listeners, For the listeners, if you've seen the Crown series on Netflix, Alan looks like the guy that played Prince Philip on there.
2: (laughs) Philip
0: the Greek. I have to look him up. And even has the same kind of accent. What kind of accent is that, Alan?
3: Well, my dad was in the Air Force, so we moved around quite a lot. So it's a kind of mixture of different different accents. Yeah, his voice sounds like him. Your voice even sounds like the actor.
0: Well, it is the actor. It's April Fool's. People don't know that. Today's
2: April 1st. We actually (laughs) got the real
1: actor. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> Shh, that's our secret
2: so I, I I know both Alan and I are joking about how we joined the job, but it, it was quite a serious thing for us. you know we we both wanted well, I know I wanted to join the police force and 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 london was was the 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 place to do it. It was a busy place. Um, there was there was a lot going on um, and and so I know we've made it made likely of the interview process But it, it was important and not everybody got accepted But uh, if you were accepted like Alan said I then went to Hendon and did 15, 15 weeks. I did Alan three yeah. five week three yeah, five actually, week courses.
3: Got it. yeah, I think you could be right. I think it, when I did it, I think it was 16 weeks but, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, And, so. you know,
2: that's very
0: similar to a lot of the academies here. My State Patrol Academy was actually 20 weeks. Steve, how long was DEA? Uh,
1: back then it was 13 weeks, but my first State Police Academy was 12 weeks. And I think DEA is up to 17 or 18 weeks
0: now. Yeah. And then... Um, did you go through a field training um, phase as well, too, so that now that you're out of the training and stuff, you're working with a uh, what we would call an FTO, a field training officer? Did you walk a beat? Did you did you ride at first? How did that work?
3: With me, when I arrived at the police station, we used to have these things called reliefs. We had three teams. Uh, well, actually, I think there were four teams because there was early, late, and night, and one was off. Uh, and And you were a probationer, and you uh, were a, there was a sergeant responsible for looking after you, uh, and you kind of got on with it. Uh, we walked around the beat. We originally you'd walk out with the sergeant for a few weeks, and then they'd kick you out on your own. Uh, and then we had that continuing learning process with with. Uh, got what they call that ctc I ctc think it was. Continue,
2: continuing training centers
3: yeah so we had to go along there how often was it graham was it something like once every two weeks once a
2: once a month wasn't it was it once a month and take once an, a month
3: you took an exam every month didn't you and stuff like that yeah um uh,
2: and you were well, continu- you were continually monitored by your reporting sergeant, as Alan was saying it. And at the end of it, that went together with your CTC results, uh, whether you got confirmed as a as a, a officer or not, a police officer or not.
0: Yeah, or made it off. Two years is two years is a long time for probation. How did you manage that, Graham?
2: Um, I I loved it. I, I yeah. really did, and I I actually um was in plain clothes while I was still a probationer. So I did eighteen months in uniform, um, and I I I just had a knack. I was a bit of a thief taker, and I'd walk out of the front door to the nick and trip over bodies. I'd just trip over <laughs> people. You know, it was. It was just good fun.
3: Yeah. So. Uh, when we talk about bodies, we're talking about people who are arrested. They're known as bodies, uh, not yeah. like cadavers or something. Not, um, not like, yeah, victims. Okay. And, yeah. and
0: actually, it's interesting, too. You keep using the word the nick. And I know from it took me a while to catch it, but it's like when you nick somebody. So what's the slang behind when you call it the nick? Is that like your word for
2: station or precinct? Yeah, yeah. Um, that's, the, that's the police station. We call it the nick. Um, yeah. So, and I mean, then when yeah, you yeah, became a
3: when you became a detective, you used to refer to it as the factory.
2: Yeah, so the that factory, it was more right, of a covert.
3: Yeah. So, when they, are we going back to the factory? <laughs> the factory.
2: Uh, <laughs> <laughs> as we took. Talk- as we talk, you'll probably find a few more bits coming out, like a bit of London rhyming slang will probably come into our conversations as we go Oh, we're going to talk well. about
0: the Cockney rhyming slang a little <laughs> bit later. That was our one for the frost. So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, on our drinking escapade. But, uh, Alan, so let's go back to you. How long were you, because it was so funny the way you mentioned, how long were you in uniform and what was the process for applying for detective? Why did you apply for detective?
3: Uh, I thought it was more interesting. Uh, and w- when I did it, you had to. We had at the police station, we had the uniform police, we had the CID office, and then we had a thing called the crime squad. And the crime squad were mainly uniform PCs employed in plain clothes with a couple of detectives who did all the donkey work for the CID and stuff like that. So you joined the crime squad and you uh worked with them, I worked with them for about eighteen months two years, and then you applied to become a detective uh so uh that was my path into being a detective and uh the crime squad was we were very busy uh and uh we used to arrest a lot of people on the on the crime squad
0: what kind of what what were some of the uh, typical crimes or typical cases that you would be
3: called upon to work stuff like Burglary we had one instance. I remember when we had a couple of nighttime burglars working our ground who they couldn't catch So they made the whole of the crime squad permanent night duty until we caught them and Boy, <laughs> did we work at that because I really wasn't a fan That's of, cold being of. <laughs> Yeah, you know that we'd have things like that, uh street robbers uh, burglars But we we'd arrest anybody, you know stealing milk off the doorstep. We'd have them off uh <laughs> So that's a good judged, motivator, you know, you were judged on the number of arrests you had, you know, if you, if we had, we had to put weekly returns in and if you hadn't arrested anybody all week, the DCI had come into the office and say, Thomas, what have you been doing for the past week? You would say, well, I was a court governor all week and that's no excuse. You know, it didn't run. So, uh, yeah, it was, it was numbers in those days.
0: Well, Graham. Hey, explain to us too. Alan just used a term, and I want to because I've heard this term "gov." You know, governor, boss. So, "gov," governor, is that a, is that a term for supervisor or your boss? Where did that come from? Yeah,
2: I mean, usually the inspector, the detective inspector or the detective chief inspector. Um, most NICs, like the Nick that I started off, had it had a, a, a DI and a a DCI. So, uh, the DCI was in charge overall, in charge of. Uh, uh, of the CID office at that time and the crime squad. My route was much the same as Alan's. I, I came out of uniform and, uh, and and went on to what then we had, what was called a beat crime squad. So you would deal with the minor crimes like theft from motor vehicles, um, theft of motor vehicles and then progress to the crime squad. So if you, like Alan said, if you had good arrest figures, they wanted you on the crime squad and they, then, to to progress into the CID um i i worked a a, a largely affluent area right in the very beginning and you, the the crimes were the same as what alan said burglaries destruction burglaries and drugs um cannabis was uh, was the in drug then um and so uh, you could always if you were short of a rest you could always walk around the local green um and <laughs> uh, and get a couple of bodies that way
0: <laughs> you you were stacking the you 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 were you were piling on as we used to say you know upping the stats you know hey yeah. Same thing too. It's like you know, but you know the other thing too. People think that oh, you're just out there. It's like nah, there's so much stuff. Like you say, you could just throw a stone and hit five people who needed to be arrested. It wasn't that tough, you know, to, to find things to do.
2: I I was a little bit older, joining, and I was 26. So um, I think I think I tried to be fair. Mm-hmm. You know, if uh, if you if you stop somebody and talk to somebody, and and they fail the attitude jet test, well. Then there's the problem. But uh, <laughs> if, if if people are nice, then you're nice back to them, which is what society should be like. But we were lucky because we were lucky that we had a uniform on, so it was uh, take your chances. If you gob off, then you're going to get nicked.
1: It was it was the same here, Graham. So many people
0: talk talk themselves into tickets or going to jail. Yeah. Oh, I had somebody. Hey, but Alan, something I'm always curious about too. We hear it on, on a lot of the British police procedurals, which I will tell you, we you and I were discussing a couple of uh, good ones. But walk us through too, because over here, um, when we bring somebody in, if they're if they're in custody or it's it's called a custodial interrogation, we have to advise them of the rights. You have words like caution, and you actually have a similar set of rights. How does it? How does that work when you bring somebody in? Because you, you see it on TV, and I always wanted to ask, you know. We have defendants over here that when you bring them in, if they say, look, I want a lawyer, that's it. You cannot say anything to them. But over there, you can actually sit and ask questions. They can say no comment maybe, but are they obligated? And what and what does caution mean when you're using it in that uh, reference?
3: A, a, a caution. When you arrest somebody, you are uh, legally required to caution them, tell them that they don't have to say anything, uh, anything they do say can be given in evidence, et cetera, et cetera. And they've changed it now so that they also say that uh, if you rely on court, something that you don't mention, the court can make inferences of it. So it's very much like, is it, do you call it Miranda? Something like yeah, that. that we, it, yeah, Miranda. Uh, uh, and it depends on the circumstances, but the vast majority of the time when they're arrested and they're cautioned, you can't really interview them till it's done formally at the police station they're taken to the police station the custody officer then is responsible for their detention and their rights and one of the rights they have is to consult a a solicitor Uh, and if they choose and they say yes i want a solicitor you can't question them then until the solicitor's present and has spoken to them beforehand Uh, so that's the way it kind of works when i joined uh and you know now there are limits on the custodial period and things like that you know you can keep somebody in police detention for 24 hours if you want to keep them longer than that there are hoops you have to jump through it can be done but initially it's a senior police officer and then it's a court saying we will extend the detention When me and Graham joined, you could lock somebody up and leave them in the cells, (laughs) you know. And and it was a great, I have to say, uh, it was a great way of getting people to talk, you know, shut the cell door on them and say, knock on the door when you want to talk to us. And you'd have situations like the the station sergeant would come up to the CID officer, is anyone going to talk to that bloke downstairs because he's been here for three and a half days, you know. But that's all (laughs) changed. It's changed very dramatically. And now uh, there are specific time periods. So uh, I, I, would, I would guess it's very similar to the US uh, in terms of their rights and things like that. It was all brought in by something called the Police and Criminal Evidence Act, uh, which brought in things like taped interviews. We tape record, or they tape record all the interviews now. And that's what they refer to as PACE, right? The PACE clock is ticking? Yeah, the Police and Criminal Evidence Act. So when they talk about the PACE clock and things like that, that's what they're actually referring to.
2: When, we, when Alan and I... When Alan and I used to interview in the early days, there was no tape recording then. It was contemporaneous notes, so you would sit there and and write word for word what the interviewing officer was saying and what the suspect was saying. So, as Alan said, if they didn't talk, you'd give them a three day lay down, so they'd go back in the pokey for three days. So, um, it was. If, the I had, to- if I had to write
0: everything everybody was saying, you would. I can't even read my own handwriting half the time. <laughs> I don't know how you
2: did it. If, if you had a long interview, you would end up with calluses on, on your, your, your your writing fingers. Because, and cramps. Uh, Writer's cramps. Uh, yeah. Because and if, if you had a good interview uh, uh, partner, um, he would ask lots of questions. That would be a lot of writing. And as you said, Morgan, towards the end of a couple of hours interview, that writing is not as good as what it was when you started. <laughs> <laughs> and even I had difficulty deciphering at the end. And and you used to give it to a typist to type up, and and she'd come out and she'd go nuts because she couldn't. <laughs> and, you, and, you'd say, and I'm sorry, I have no idea what that says either. <laughs> I don't know what that squiggle means.
3: Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah you know, and I can I can go one further than that because I'm dyslexic as well, so I can't even read my own writing. And <laughs> <laughs> we we used to get them typed up and. I think the defense lawyers got the typed up version of the interview because if you looked at the handwritten version of the interview, it could say anything, you know, just by towards the end. It was a series of squiggles and lines, you know.
0: Well, Alan, you heard about the atheist who was dyslex- dyslexic and agnostic. Lays awake at night wondering if there really is a dog. Yeah, yeah. Oh, sorry. Boom. Oh. <laughs> your,
2: your jokes yeah. haven't, incru- haven't improved, Morgan.
0: <laughs> <laughs> My picture taking is pretty good, though, Graham. <laughs> yeah. yeah, okay. Uh, uh, well, now, hey, so how, long, so how long were you on the streets? Uh, or actually, you moved up into investigations uh, as a detective Is there? How do you go about becoming part of Scotland Yard? Is that a separate whole function that you have to apply for, or is that just a natural progression um, once you make detective?
2: It 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 depends. You uh, are probably the same as Alan. You 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 do your um, your apprenticeship with on the crime squad, and then you get uh, invited into the CID office as a TDC, a a trainee detective uh, constable. Um, and from there, then they a, a number a couple of times a year, they then hold boards or interviews for detectives to get to be detectives where you sit down and uh, in front of a couple of senior officers and ask a few questions and um, and and they decide whether you're going to become a detective or not. But then then you in those days, we used to move every three years, Alan, or four years as a detective. Yeah around so there, between could, 3 and 5. Yeah, so um you could you When you could,
0: say you would move, move from what different types of squads or different geographical
2: locations? Yeah, so I I I was first posted to uh, Shepherd's Bush. Um uh, that was my first posting as a uh, as a detective. Um and then 3 years later, well d- Shepherd's Bush in their, in those days was like World War 3 used to. It never stopped from from morning till till night. You'd, you'd go in and office at 7 o'clock in the morning and maybe you'd get away at 8 or 9 o'clock at night too. Um, and sometimes you couldn't even have a pint on the way home because it was too late for the pubs, you know. And you'd done 12, 14 hours. Too and it late was, for the pubs? How yeah. could that be in London? <laughs> so you know, it, it it was a it was a full on full on job in those days. But so, and you would get say somebody was somewhere and they wanted to move, they would put their feelers out. Like I moved from Shepherd's Bush out to um, to Staines uh, because somebody in Staines wanted the wanted to come into Shepherd's Bush, and that's and that was I think I did three and a half years at Shepherd's Bush, and then moved to an outer station. So you had inner and outer stations. Um,
0: what and, kind of a, what kind of travel time did that take for you at that time? Because Shepherd's Bush will actually factor in when we talk about the twenty one seven attempted bombings. But from where you were living at that time, what what was your normal travel time to get to work, and how did you get there—the tube or uh, taxi
2: or? I used I used to drive in. Uh, I drive my own car in there. Um, so uh, depending if you were going in early in the morning, you could probably do it. it it's from my house is probably. 12 miles, I could do it uh, probably in 20 minutes, 25 minutes. But if it was 9 o'clock, um, then that could take you an hour or even an hour and a half to do that, um, that journey because of the rush hour traffic. But as How I say, about you, well, Alan?
0: What was your normal commute like?
3: Uh, depends where I was. My first detective posting was uh, a place called Mitcham in South London. Uh, I used to drive there. That was about... 45 minute drive uh i then went to notting hill and dependent on what you're doing i would if i was working during the day i'd get the tube training if i was nights or we had a very early start or something like that i would drive in uh and it was probably 45 minutes to drive to and from there as well uh, i'm trying to think what i don't think i ever worked anywhere where i was really close by Uh. Did you have a choice, uh, you know, uh,
0: Graham, too, when you talked about you wanted to uh, switch places, you wanted to go from Shepherd's Bush to where did you say stain?
2: Sustains, yeah. So it it, it was a move that suited me. So instead of going into central London every day or to going into Shepherd's Bush, I was going out the other way. So I was going against the traffic. So I didn't have to put up a. And how were you
0: able to? Uh, was, was that just simply a matter of getting approval from uh, yeah. the, the, the the DCS or yeah. the the, CA, the chief superintendent?
2: Yeah, the the you, you did it. I I think through the the borough uh, commander, so he would authorize moves. Um, so if somebody wanted to move, other than that, you, you you know vacancies used to come up, and you you'd apply for positions at various police stations. Or if you wanted to go later on, you wanted to progress. You'd have a you'd have a board to go to a central squad, like um, I went to um, to a CO posting from Staines. So um, I went on to um, what we we had in those days was the Force Intelligence Bureau. So I went to the Force Intelligence Bureau, but that wasn't a police station. It, it was a. Um, a department. So you were on then, like you just asked Alan. How do you get into CO? That was that was my first step into CO. To to the
3: to the yeah. CO was the predecessor of SO. CO stood for the Commissioner's Office. Okay. Uh, and SO stands for uh, Specialist Operations. So anything that was originally CO thirteen would become SO thirteen, oh 13. when they did that change, but. So the the person, the senior person in the Metropolitan Police Service, is known as the Commissioner. Uh, so that's where CO and Commissioner's office comes from.
0: So I actually had a chance one time up in New York to meet uh, Sir Ian Blair, who at that time was the Commissioner of the London Met. Was he ever your boss? Were you on when he was there?
2: Yeah, uh, yeah, I I was. Yeah, so I think I was. It was that was must have been the eighties, eighties, Alan. Early yeah, it 80s. was.
3: I got a commendation from him. And I was always amazed. Uh,
2: amazed
0: but, at what? That you got the commendation, or that he knew who uh, you were? No,
3: <laughs> he, he actually the conversation. He was complaining to me about how the press had written something about him that wasn't true. And I'm thinking, <laughs> why are you telling me this? You know, <laughs> because uh, it was probably true. But, yeah. Uh-huh.
0: <laughs> oh my goodness. Hey, well, let's set a little. Let's set a little historical context. We want to start working in now to. Um, uh the bombings of 7705 but before we get there and Alan you actually brought up a really good point and Graham you we also talked about this too. Part of the historical context was the issue of the provisional IRA, which when I went back and was just trying to do some research, I saw that there was, it actually used to be just the IRA, but then there was the faction who just wanted to use the legislative process or kind of peaceful protest, but then there was the armed wing of it, which became the provisional IRA. And that's the ones that ended up there. I mean, there were bombings, there were attacks, and this started, my goodness, I think 1920 is when uh, that act came in to separate uh, you know, Ireland out uh, from Ireland to Northern Ireland but then a lot of the big trouble started in 72. Graham, when you were growing up, you said you were in Cardiff, but did you have much contact or hear much about what was going on with the bombings or the IRA at that time?
2: Um, um, no, well, actually, 70, 73, um, I was in the Merchant Navy. I did three years in the Merchant Navy, so I was out of the country for a lot that was going on. So, uh, But Cardiff was, okay, it's the capital city of Wales, but not the same as being in London, we didn't suffer. if anything, we suffered with the Welsh nationalists who wanted to burn down all the holiday homes in Wales. <laughs> <laughs>
0: so, what about you Alan? what was your what what, what do you remember what act, uh, you know what impact or what uh, tie-ins did you have to the ira during that point while you were uh, growing up?
3: Uh, well, my father was in the in the air Force, so uh, you know they, they the military were a target, uh, uh, and I mean the I, the IRA were, have been around for a very long time. And obviously, the IRA stands for Irish Republican Army. You know, they were originally a, a, a military operation, and but the history of the Irish Republicans is kind of splits, and they the the main body of the IRA gave up the armed struggle a long time ago, and the Provisional branch of the IRA carried it on. The provisional branch of the IRA with the Good Friday Agreement have stopped now, but you've now got the real IRA. So you've gone from IRA to PYRA, and now you've got RIRA. Uh, and people like that, uh, I, I think that the level of support for it has dropped off dramatically. That's one of the biggest changes. But uh, I know
0: one of the laboratories but, got blown up in Northern Ireland. One of the forensic labs they had where a lot of the evidence was, I think, on homicides and stuff. So while it's kind of tamped down, like I think you said, the real yeah. IRA, they're still active at least some point, right?
3: Yeah, but not like they were. Uh, they represented a, 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 a very serious threat. And, you know, the height of the... Provisionals' campaign; uh, they were letting off five bombs a day uh, in Ireland, in the north of Ireland, and in mainland UK. I mean, my wife nearly got blown up at the Harrods bombing. She was very close to that one. When was uh, that? Late '80s, I think. Uh, but there was a couple of people killed. A woman police officer was killed there. Uh, uh, and you know, it was not unusual at that time in London to have bombs going off in the streets. We kind of got used to it. Um, so, uh, but the Good Friday Agreement and the peace process in Northern Ireland really put a stop to the threat in uh, in London and places like that. But prior to that, it was a, it was a real well. A real...
0: You you joined as you said in. Um... Uh, What did you say? 77, right? 1977. So were you, did you end up working any of the crime scenes or any of the bombings?
3: Uh, No. Uh, The first bombings that I worked were I was actually attached to the anti-terrorist branch after some attacks in about 2007, but they were uh, attacks against the, against Jewish communities. establishments in london the uh israeli embassy was bombed and a couple of other jewish establishments in london were bombed uh that was my first experience of dealing with it prior to that uh i i was too new in service to get really involved in in what was happening at the terrorist level at that time
0: wow well, let, let's talk about when did you officially become, uh, Graham, let's start with you. When did you officially become a new part of New Scotland Yard? Me as
2: uh, my career. Right. Yeah. So uh, 80, about 90, 1990. So, no, it was a bit later than that because I went from Staines where I was posted. I then went to to a regional crime squad so um i did surveillance training um and then uh, surveillance on uh, upper tier criminals uh, on on the crime squad and then from there um i then went into dps where i met alan so um i'm trying to think what you what's was that, dps alan? um professional uh, professional standards department of Pressure's professional standards
0: OK, so that's internal corruption, uh, internal investigations, things like that. Yeah. Or were, did you only focus on criminal activities and not violations of policy and things like that, which might be internal affairs?
2: Yeah, we, it, it wasn't violation of policy. We, we concentrated on um, corrupt police officers um, uh, who were in, involved with. Uh, sorry, Alan, go on.
3: Yeah, I, I was a. Uh... I was a financial investigator. I worked at the Central London Crime Squad, and I'm not In fact, crime squads weren't... Or the, central, the regional London crime squads weren't really part of Scotland Yard, but I was working there. Uh, there was a covert scoping exercise carried out, uh, and possibly even by the security service, around corruption in London and they realized that they had a problem, and they formed a special unit to deal with it, which was originally called CIB3. Uh, It started off being extremely covert, and I joined CIB3 as it went to the uh, overt side of things. Uh, One of the reasons that I, or when I I was actually approached and asked to join, and my initial reaction was, it's not my thing. Uh, I don't really do that. And and what was actually put to me was this is organised crime, Alan. This is actually a very, very good way of getting into organised crime. Uh, And we went after the, the corrupt police officers and the criminals involved in the corruption. And it was actually very, very successful. It was successful for a number of reasons. It was heavily resourced, but also... Uh, The commissioner in London had introduced this thing. What did they call it, where you had to go back to uniform? Uh, Interchange. Interchange. They they introduced this thing called interchange, where if you were a, a CID officer, a detective, you worked as a detective for, I don't know how long it was, five years, and then you had to go back to uniform for three years. And it corresponded with the formation of CIB3. So they had a lot of detectives who didn't want to go back to uniform. And CIB3 got you out of that. So I strongly <laughs> suspect that they got a lot of detectives in there, good detectives that they wouldn't have got otherwise. Would you agree, Graham?
2: Yeah. I, I, I was approached with uh, the same way as you. and I, I, I didn't want to go there, but it, 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 it was the same sales pitch. You know, we're where going after the corruptors and the corrupted. Um, and, and we had, like Alan said, we had some great success, um, with
0: what was an example of the, uh, of a, of a typical corruption case, uh, that you might work, Graham, you know, what, what, when you say corruption, are we talking about selling information, selling intelligence We're talking or about f-
3: murder and drug dealing?
0: Yeah. Oh, so not so uh, uh, heavy duty stuff. Yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah.
3: we had, a, 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 I'll give you an example. We had a private investigation company under what we would call full cover, in relation to an investigation somebody walked in there and said to them i'm going through an acrimonious divorce from my wife uh we're squabbling over custody of children i want to keep custody of the children is there anything you can do to help me and they said yeah we'll get her arrested for drug dealing and he said you can do that and they said yeah no worries and i think he paid them something like eight thousand pounds they planted... They were originally trying to plant drugs in a house. They couldn't get in a house, so they planted it in the car. They had a corrupt police officer who put in an intelligence report saying that she was drug dealing. Uh, they let it run. Uh, the police officers went act- actually went and got a search warrant. They searched her home and her car. She was arrested. And the following day, there's a knock on a door from a very senior detective saying, I've got a story to tell you. You know, And it was like that. That's the... Uh, there were drug squads operating in London who would uh, do a drugs raid. They would uh, take, they would hand in at the police station half the drugs and half the money. They'd keep the money and then they, the drugs would be recycled through uh, contacts that they had and things like that. Uh, we had police officers getting sent to prison for substantial periods of time for drug dealing. Uh, so. As
2: as they should be.
3: Yeah, absolutely.
2: One particular one particular one where I worked on, there was a money launderer um, who um, they were the the criminal gang were after, and um, we he came to us and we put him somewhere safe, but we 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 set up (laughs) a a sting where. Long and complicated, but a couple of police officers turned up, um, at a hotel waiting for this guy to turn, to, to turn up. Um, they positioned their car close to the window of what his, his room, alleged room were. Um, they had worked out how long it was going to take him to get the window open in the hotel, open the boot, put him into a boot and take him away to a farm. Where he was going to be tortured at a, at a farm, and this is this is police officers, and that's the caliber of the crime that that, that we were working on at that time. Wow, wow, wow! So That's, that's even st- our both
1: going wow at the same time. <laughs> yeah, that's. I mean, we've had corruption like I'm not sure we've had it like that, but I'm sure we have at some point throughout the United oh, I, States. But well, damn, w- especially they, the
3: East Coast. Yeah, what we did with that guy is we had him in protective custody, and nobody knew. So we knew that police officers were tracking him through things like credit card usage so they effectively booked him into this hotel used his credit card in the hotel uh put a whole load of his property in the room parked his car outside and just sat and waited to see what would happen and then the drugs dealers like serious major drug dealers turned up with two police officers who told them what to do and gave them plastic handcuffs and stuff like that so uh these people were sent to prison for a long time and i um, kind of very happy they were but oh yeah uh, you know that's the sort of thing it it, for me it was a real education uh and we did a couple of other jobs that now have me completely convinced that corruption exists in every walk of life Mm -hmm. the law medicine banking you name it there's corruption the moment you turn around and say it doesn't exist you take your eye off the ball uh and you're never going to see it but it exists yeah uh, but uh it was so successful we had a uh a, a, what was the term that they used graham for the people integrity testing unit and our integrity testing unit was so good that uh Police forces from outside of London were asking us to come into their police areas and do integrity testing for them. And, you know, a few years ago, the concept of bringing the Met in to test whether you've got corruption would have been laughed out of the room, you know. But that's, that's how successful it was. And, um, and that's actually where, where I met Graham. Uh, it, it morphed through various, uh, it morphed through various names and titles, and it really the unit we joined I don't think exists any longer. It, it's been uh, integrated into all the usual uh,
0: DPS type. Yeah. Uh, what is integrity testing? Are you talking about polygraphs, interview, backgrounds? Uh, what do we when when you say that? What do you mean? No, we
3: we set people up uh, and see whether they take the bait. Uh, um. Steal things and stuff like that, uh,
0: Steve. You always have a saying. Tell, if, tell, tell them what your saying is about cops.
1: Oh, well, there's nobody that hates a bad cop more than a good cop. You know, and when you're convicted as a bad cop, well, you need to go under yeah, the jail.
3: And the, and the other people actually who do are the criminals. You know, they they really have got no respect. They'll use them and they'll right. be involved with them. But they, you know, you think about it. If you're a criminal, you might have a little bit of grudging respect for a, for an honest cop, but a dirty cop has got absolutely no. You know.
0: So we just recorded a podcast. You you may not know the name Dominic Polifrome but he did a big investigation over in the U.S. He was a retired uh, Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms agent, and he investigated a mob hitman called Richard Kuklinski. Uh, he supposedly had 100 hits from the mob. They took him down for five. But when the days of the arrest came from, and and, um, or, and actually this is a previous case where he had worked across all five crime families... One of the youngsters goes, I'm going to kill you. I'm going to do this. And one of the made men, you know, the big bosses said, no, you're not. He respected us. He did his job. He didn't mess with our women. He didn't do drugs. He was legitimate. He was honest. Even the mob had a code of honor for good cops, you know, but we've seen too. Uh, Steve, I was just reading a couple things that came out. There was a. Uh, don't, you know hate to use the word FBI but you know retired FBI or an FBI agent that went to jail for helping people like whitey Bulger you know one of the big crime people so uh, again nobody hates bad cops more than good cops and so what you guys did was you hate to say it's a necessary evil but you're right it's a necessary evil it has to be done um, but that led you in like you said into the next phase of your career which leads us into the uh, 7705 bombing so the reason we're kind of laying all this out you folks uh, out there tuning in, not only do we get some good British accents, which Steve and I, neither of a, one of us have, we are a, a common we are we are a, a people separated by a common language. Um, uh, but it, it really starts setting the stage for now the train bombing. So um, let's talk about this now, uh, and from both of your perspectives. Let's start off with you first, Graham. In the year leading up to seven seven oh five, let's just talk about the prior twelve months. What was the mood like? Because this is post nine um, eleven. I was actually in Pakistan not too long after the bombings but you know but I'd been over in the Middle East we walked around with our heads on a swivel it was a different time what was the mood like where you were working and what you were doing for those 12 months you know leading up to the 7705 bombings
2: I, I I think 9/11 changed the whole world as far as uh, uh, policing was concerned uh, and terrorism from from then on in, it was it, it was a problem, uh, whether it was in your country or our country, um, and I think we upped our game. We were we were lucky because we'd had a, we had a lot of experience of uh, IRA bombs, and and I, I I also think the people over here understood when when we said you know um, report something. Um, it, People got the message because of what had gone on before, so people were aware of this. But we had uh, we had a number of operations uh, prior to 2005, good operations where we did um, uh, we we stopped uh, we stopped things happening. You know, we had a, we had a number of big operations. Um, we. Um, uh, a a good relationship was fostered with the, the security services um and i think we took down a, a lot of things before it got to the stage where um there was going to be loss of life um particularly um, um uh, offenses um Preparation for offences. There were a a number. We had a number of good jobs in the office um, where, um, like I was uh, saying to the other night, Morgan, you know, we'd go out and if if there had been a surveillance team behind one of our targets and in those days, we didn't have the mobile phones that we got now. I know we're not talking that long ago um, and we didn't have the internet access. So people used to use, regularly use internet cafes. So you'd have somebody go in and they'd, uh, if they were under surveillance, um, they'd then mark the computer. Um, and say, right, it was in this position or that position. And, and we'd end up, uh, going in once the arrests went in or sometime prior to the arrest and shut the internet cafe down and take every single computer out of the, out of the internet cafe. You know, we could end up with, with 10 computers or 25, 30 computers coming in. we they didn't use deep freeze in those days. So the computers weren't wiped overnight like they are now in, in internet cafes. So, we we found a lot of stuff um, doing that, but it was a busy time. And the the, the good thing was that we weren't talking about terabyte about hard drives then. We were only talking about a forty gig hard drive or a sixty gig hard drive. But again, they still they could give us real problems trying to image this stuff. Um, we were only what were we using Alan N cases? Our N case was our imaging tool, wasn't it in those days?
0: Yeah, and folks, what we're getting into here is the invest. This is how we all met was the, through the investigation of computer crime and training. But that was the thing: is computers were becoming the means for communication, the means for planning. There were only a few places where you could go in and get an internet access, like the internet cafes. And yeah. so th- this became. I mean, it. it, it started getting outside the traditional ways that you used to be able to intercept calls and things, you know, pay phones, you know, or home phones and things like that. So became very important. Hey, Alan, before we dive into too much too, also talk about how the, your country is structured with the security services, because there's MI5, yeah. there's MI6, there's GCHQ. Yeah. And I thought it was interesting also what you mentioned about MI5, which is they have actually no arrest powers of, so they have to work with you. So how's that structured in the UK?
3: Okay, we're slightly different. In the US, you have the FBI, who are a a law enforcement organization, but they're also responsible for internal terrorism. Uh, In the UK, MI5 actually have the lead on that, the security service. And I actually think it works quite well because they have the ability to approach people and say, listen, we're not the cops, blah, 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 you know, we're MI5, etc. And the other side of the coin is we, you know, people like us, we could approach people and say, hey, you know, we're not MI5, we're the cops kind of routine. Whereas you don't have that in the US. Uh, So MI5 have the lead uh, on intelligence, etc, etc. But as soon as it becomes operational, it, it, it becomes a police. Uh, it becomes a police responsibility, uh, and, and they work very well in in kind of partnership. Uh, the decision making process is always based on threat to life. So our ambition is to would be to actually get as much evidence about these conspiracies as you possibly can. But the person ultimately making the decision as soon as he believes there's an uh, there's a threat to life uh, will go in and will disrupt if that's if that means losing evidential opportunities uh, And potentially losing the the case against a conspiracy or something like that They will go in early rather than late The danger obviously of going in late is that right. you don't get there in time and people lose their lives so uh, mi5 are, are uh, an intelligence organization, they have the lead on intelligence in the UK in terms of terrorism. Uh, and the operational wing of it is, is the, the police uh, and the counterterrorism command. And they work, I think, you know, there's obviously an awful lot of I- integration. Uh, MI6, which is the secret intelligence service are responsible for uh, intelligence internationally, almost like a branch of the Uh, the Diplomatic Service, the Foreign and Commonwealth Office. Uh, And and GCHQ are responsible for the interception of communication and all of that. Uh, So they kind of sit in in the middle of it all in those terms.
0: Yeah, GCHQ is is very analogous to the National Security Agency in the United States. And MI6 would be like the CIA over here. Now,
1: what yeah. about what about when when Saka was there, and now National Crime Agency?
3: Yeah, there. I always say that the, the National Crime Agency. I don't know if you agree, Graham, but of all the national soccer's and all the rest of it, they tried creating over the years, which is never, I don't think, been particularly successful. I think the the NCA are looking quite competent and successful. Yeah. And the big, the big test of their competency for me is when they get given responsibility for terrorism, uh, which they don't have. They have responsibility for just about everything else at a national level, but they don't have responsibility for terrorism. And I I think that's, you know, when they get given, or if they get given that, it will be an indication that they are very successful. But of all the things they've had over the years, we've had a lot of unsuccessful organisations where they've tried to create these national things. But they seem to be... I'm actually done quite a good job. I don't know whether you'd agree Graham because you probably had more dealings with them than yeah, me. Yeah, uh,
2: yeah, I yeah, I think they've been very successful and and I think they they the relationships they've fostered with uh, with people around the world as well um really helps with their operations. Yeah. We've had a number of um of big seizures of uh, heroin. Um, lately, uh, a couple of months ago, and and it was all as a result of of what they did, and it, it came across as very professional the operation that they put together. What I've read of it, I've, I'm I'm only reading as a civilian now, um, but yeah, uh, I I think I actually think that like Alan says, they've come of age now from from all the bitty stuff. Yeah, yeah, because the uh, the RCS that I was on went to the NCS, and then that went to the uh to the nca um and i i i do agree with alan they, they seem to have made a real success out of this now, i've still got a couple of friends who were in there um and they enjoy working for they get some good jobs
1: You know, when when, uh, I was still on with DEA, I spent five years in our special operations division uh, just outside of Washington, D.C., and we signed an agreement with a serious organized crime agency at that time, and they actually stationed an analyst, and uh, I guess you'd call him an agent or an officer, whatever the correct term is there, in our office. And then later in my career, after a couple of promotions, I was running the Department of Justice, uh, the OCDF Fusion Center, which is the Organized Crime Drug Enforcement Task Force Fusion Center. And they were a part of that. And that, that came about into NCA. Um, but what it did was it, it facilitated the exchange of information between countries. And when you know when we said something in the U.K. that we needed immediately, We had a a Brit right there with us that could make make things happen and vice versa. When they needed something in the U.S., we could respond immediately. So it was, uh, you know, regardless of of what anybody thinks about the organizations, it certainly facilitated cooperation uh, across the ocean there.
0: Well, and we all know too, from all of our respective jobs and stuff, it's all about connecting the dots as quickly as possible. The worst thing in the world is to have information sitting somewhere that could be actionable. Nobody knows about it or nobody shares it. And we don't have a mechanism to share. I mean, that's, that's caused a lot of the problems. And speaking of that, before we, we're gonna dive into the, the case now, but there's one precursor to that too, Alan, and you brought it up and I didn't realize this. Tell us about the gas limo project. Um, I know you weren't involved in it, but but tell us about that because that kind of becomes a blueprint for some of what we're talking about.
3: Yeah, uh, just a little bit of history. When we were talking, me and Graham were talking about the fact we worked together at CIB3, uh, and it was to do with internal corruption. And we didn't, as as a result of that, we didn't use police facilities. We kind of, uh, we had covert bases outside of London. We had covert surveillance teams based outside of London. And uh, we started doing our own digital forensics. So me and Graham got into digital forensics uh, as a result of that. Uh, And then we moved to uh, what was the (laughs) anti-terrorist branch, to their high-tech unit. Uh, I think when we moved to the high-tech unit, they were up to seven people. uh, Sorry, five, and we took it to seven as arriving. Uh, Prior to that, in the early days that that they'd started, they had actually arrested somebody uh, for doing uh, hostile reconnaissance. And when they examined the computer... uh, There were various things on it. There was a lot of hostile reconnaissance in actual actual fact in New York. They'd had a good look at Wall Street. They'd actually had a good look at the World Trade Center before 9-11. They'd had a look at the helicopter trips you can do around the harbor uh, Mm -hmm. with the view to to an attack based on that. But he had on his computer a, a document called, which has become known as the Gas Limo Project, And it was a document on how to build vehicle borne incendiary devices using uh, everyday materials and quite in depth into the science of it. Uh, I always thought that if you threw a gas canister, a propane gas canister into a fire, it would heat up and explode. Uh, It doesn't because there's a release valve that's built into it specifically for that. It'll vent the gas, which will burn off. And this document went into some detail these into these processes and how to actually block that valve and prevent that happening so that you would get something like that. And and you remember the World Trade Center was the 9-11 the first, was the second attack. The yeah, first right. the one first was 93. 93 uh, yep. And that was, uh, that was that kind of attack, a gas limo attack. So this guy uh was arrested before our time the evidence was recovered off the computer and he was sent to prison for a long time which meant the management there suddenly thought a couple of things one uh we need to be in this we need to be doing this uh and two we need to be supporting it as well and then 9-11 happened and the support obviously after that became quite substantial uh you know and we were always expecting these kind of attacks to happen in the UK uh, it wasn't a question of if it was really a question of when uh, after the after the especially after the second uh, Gulf War and things like that the invasion of Iraq uh, you know it, it was going to happen it wasn't a question of if it was a question of when uh, and, and if anything we were surprised it kind of took quite as long as it did.
2: Uh, well,
0: Graham, you mentioned earlier that Alan tricked you into becoming a part of this squad and it evolved a fax machine.
2: <laughs> no, that was when we were working on that squad. Uh, my oh. special, my specialty seemed to be fax machines whenever I went, when I went out with Alan. We, again, <laughs> we were on DPS and we were investigating um, a, an officer who was... Um, um, working for a a a foreign country and uh he 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 was from that background as well and uh, we went to his his home address uh um, we 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 spun his drum early one morning and uh um, went in there and a couple of a couple of kids and the family. But there was a fax machine in, in, in the room. Again, we're going back a bit, so things were, were sent on fax. And Alan had a look at it, and he said, oh, this is not working. Um, and uh, I went over and had a look at it, and I said, no, it's probably because of all the Lego toys that are inside the top of this thing. So <laughs> we gave it a good shake around, and I, I eventually I managed to recover the Lego toys from this, and we turned it on, and it, it actually worked. And we were able to we were able to print off some of the sheets that gave us some some nice evidence from a a fax machine that was jammed up with Lego toys. So every time we went somewhere, me and Alan on a spin, it was always Alan used to say, well, there's the fax machine. That's your job first. (laughs) (laughs) You
1: know, you got to explain one thing. You said he spun his drum. What does that mean?
2: Oh, we kicked his door in early one morning. A, A drum is a is a house. So we did a search, so we spun his drum one morning.
0: (laughs) See, there's, again, two great countries separated by a common language. We're going to have to have a, a guide for everybody. We've laid a lot of groundwork now. Let's get into it. And Steve, you actually had a question. You, you wanted to ask uh, Alan and, and Graham about it. It's about the dates and stuff. So let's let's talk about that. And then let's, because t- there's not just one attack. There were actually two attacks, only one of which was successful. W- what did you want to cover on that before we get started?
1: Yeah, I just want to make sure the listeners, when if you've heard reference to uh, 7705 and 7... 20, 7, 721. 721. Those are the dates of the bombings that we're about to talk about. So these took place in July of 2005. Uh, I know when we were doing pre-call to get ready for today's interview, when you guys started talking about that, I thought you were talking about a criminal code number or something over in England <laughs>
0: until well, I went did remember, the research. They, they, they put the day before the month. We do month, day, and year. They do day, month, and year. So yeah. 7-7 is, you can't get that one wrong, but 21-7 is July 21st, 2005. Right. Right. So just so you won't be as confused as I am, because that's kind of the way I live my life. Well, the first event we're going to talk about, well, of course, you're from West Virginia, Steve. Everything's confusing. <laughs> that's a, um. hey. That's a plus. You know what? I mean, only, only certain people
1: have that benefit, and yes. the rest of
0: you are jealous. Hey, let me ask you, before we do that, Alan and Graham, so we make fun of West Virginia. We'll make fun of Kansas, where I'm from. What's, where's the area that you guys make fun of in England that's kind of the is the favorite joke? Wales. <laughs>
2: <laughs> uh, I'm sorry, Graham. Where are you from? <laughs> I, knew, I knew you was going to say that. So that's why I kept quiet. Yeah. Um, yeah. Wales. Oh uh, well,
0: <laughs> one of these days, Wales will have their independence. Um, So let's talk. I mean, we we have fun, but we also talk about some serious stuff. So um, we were talking about what the mood was like leading up to this. So let's talk about the day of July 7th, 2005, because I remember exactly where I was. I was actually on vacation down in Cancun, Mexico, and that's how I originally found out about it. But but Alan, let's start with you. How did the day start off for you? Where were you working? What were you doing um, on 7705?
3: I had actually early that morning flown to Manchester to help them out uh when i got to manchester i realized what had happened uh and i flew back to london they were closing all the transport systems down and the flight was taking place but they said to me you really don't want to go to london because when you arrive at heathrow you won't be able to get out of heathrow and you won't be able to get anywhere there uh, so i said well i'm going to be one of the people responsible so i need to go back so i actually they came and picked me up at heathrow in uh, in a car with blue lights and two tone horns so uh that's that was my introduction on the morning
0: how did you find out about it you know did you did they call you when you landed when you got to uh, manchester
3: there were news reports starting to come out and uh i then got a phone call up there how long of a flight is it? Oh, it's only just over an hour. Okay. So I, I literally got to the, my destination at the other end with the police and said, take me back. Uh, so I went straight back to the airport and then back to London.
0: What about you, Graham? Where were you when you first heard about this?
2: Well, we used to start early in the morning. we get in the office for around about 7 o'clock every day because it was easier to travel in that time of the morning. And You avoided the rush hour. And uh, we had a, a, a television on the wall in the office. And as Alan said, there were only seven of us in the office then. Um, so we, we were sat there and uh, um, initially the news reports came up that there was a power failure on the underground. Yeah, And this is, this is how they described it because the first one had gone off. When did the first one go off, Alan? I can't remember. Was it Edgeware Road? Uh it might have been Aldgate.
0: Uh Aldgate and Liverpool Station. Yeah, Aldgate and Liverpool Station all happened around 8 50 AM.
2: Yeah. So right at the height of the rush hour. So it came up and said the tube system was shutting down because of a power failure. And then the second one went off then. And then that's when it uh it, it became obvious that we had a, a, a big terrorist um event going on. Um sky news (laughs) over here sky news i think i like fox news they they, they've got all sorts of inns everywhere and they seem to have all the best news and um and and the best reporters and that that was a program we always watched because um we we got we got good information from them and they just kept it going and you know we we knew it was a bomb then Um, and we knew that uh, obviously we were going to get heavily involved in it and and not go home for a few days.
0: Yeah, and let me put this in perspective for everybody so they understand what we're going to be talking about here because I went and just want to vet with you guys too just to make sure. I mean, three bombs went off about simultaneously about 8.50 that morning. One was between Allgate and Liverpool Street Stations where seven people were killed. Another one was between Russell Square and King's Cross stations on the Piccadilly Line, 26 people were killed. And then Edgware Road Station, which is also on the Circle Line, six people killed. But then it was this other one, and, and you used a curious term, and I'm going to have you talk about that, Graham. Almost an hour later, a double-decker bus on up of Woburn place near Tavistock Square, um, 13 people killed uh, when the bomber got there. And you said he had a touch of the seconds.
2: We, we think he had a touch of the seconds and and came out of the tube system uh, Alan know correct me if I'm wrong um, and uh, couldn't get back into the system because they closed it down I don't think it was ever his intention to, to 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 blow up the bus i I think they were all intended to to blow up and and cripple the underground system um, so he couldn't get Back into the underground station, and we tracked him on on uh, CCTV. Eventually, um, and he got onto the bus um, and and blew it up, blew the top deck of the bus up. So, um, but that was because he couldn't he couldn't do what he was supposed to do on the underground.
1: And a touch a touch of the seconds. What do you think? Is that? Second guessing himself?
2: No, a touch of the seconds. Uh, Second thoughts. He. Second thoughts. Yeah. Yeah, okay. we think he, he had second thoughts about what he was going to do. It was. So, yeah, uh, it then... was actually
3: slightly earlier than that, Morgan. It was about 745 in the morning. Oh, it was? Okay. Uh, there was, uh, an explosion on the train in Aldgate East that killed six people and injured 90. There was an explosion on the train in Edgeware Road that killed seven people and injured 185. And then there was one near Russell Square that killed 25 and injured 180. And some of these injuries were really serious, life-threatening injuries.
0: Yeah, because some people died later in the hospital even though they survived the initial explosion.
3: And some people lost both their legs and their arms and things like that, so horrendous injuries. The reason that Russell Square, the death toll was much larger than the other is there are two types of underground tunnel in London. There's a cut and fill, and then there's a drilled tunnel. So the drill tunnels are where they've actually drilled a tunnel through the substrata, so there's not a lot of space around the train. The cut and fill are practically on the surface and built over. Russell Square was the only deep tunnel. And I've always said, you know, we're lucky these people actually aren't that good at research because they'd have done three deep tunnels.
0: And that's that's that. Yeah, because that compresses the the explosion, yeah. the force of the that's explosion. Right. It contains it and makes it even worse.
3: Yeah. The bus, there were 13 killed and 73 injured. And I I, I think that one of two things happened with that guy. Either they started when the other explosions happened, they started shutting down the transport system and very frequently in a busy period in London, you'd actually have to queue on occasions to get onto the train platform. Either he couldn't get onto the platform before they shut the system down or like Graham says, he had a touch of the seconds. He wandered around the station. He wandered outside and then he, th- he I think, just thought, right, I'll get on a bus and, and do it on a bus it became a bit of an iconic thing because it was above ground and all the news media could film it. So it became iconic, but I think it was accidental from that point of view I was laughed because they got a psychiatrist to look at it all and he said, oh, yes You know if you watch him around the station He's going in and out of McDonald's and things like that iconic American brands etc. I think the person I think that's not the case I think he just uh, He was making phone calls to the others, but he didn't get a reply because they'd obviously done the deed by then uh, So I, I think that's probably what happened with him Uh uh, and I, like Graham says, I don't think it was planned. I think that the plan was to do four, Tubes, uh, to trains. do four trains. Uh, but he couldn't either. He, he, he had a touch of the seconds. And then by the time he tried to get on the system, couldn't, or he left it a little bit too long and couldn't get onto the network. So he got onto a bus.
0: Well, I, I clearly remember nine eleven. here. I was in the Reagan building and, um, we had meetings scheduled for the pentagons and, uh, I remember as we're, we're walking out. Some people said maybe we should hop the metro. My first thought was no way am I getting into something enclosed like that. We ended up walking. Uh, Steve, where were you on where were you that morning?
1: We were at. Uh, I had just reported to Special Operations Division in Washington just a few weeks prior to that, and at that time our office was out in Lorton, Virginia, right off Interstate ninety five. And and here's the you know I went. Derek Moss was my boss at the time. I was a GS fourteen. He was a fifteen. Um, uh, we went and watched the news in his office. Well, our boss came out, the big boss of the facility came out and said, OK, we're posting guards around special operations division. Just, you know, just as a precaution. And the question with all the agent was, who brought a gun to work today? Because it was a headquarters position. People didn't bring guns to work. <laughs> but the. The silly thing about it was right across the street was the fuel farm for Washington National Airport. So if somebody wanted to blow up a target, that would have been a perfect location to get a massive explosion, and we would have been vaporized. So even if you did have a weapon, it wasn't a big deal, you know.
0: would not do much good. Well, and the reason we say that, too, is because, you know, you talked about the planning and stuff um, and, you know, what you remember seeing. And that just, that just what you just said right there, and then the AQ and, and, and a hallmark of Al-Qaeda al- and some of their attacks are the follow-on attacks. They have the initial attack, what happened in Nairobi, the embassies, the follow-on attack. So uh, how did you guys get organized? So this starts going on. At what point does it become, for me, uh, when the, se- the first plane hits the towers, you're going, man, something's wrong. I mean, could it be? But then when the second one hits, it's like there's absolutely no doubt. When did it become apparent, Graham, no doubt at all that this was a terrorist attack?
2: Uh, just by watching the news, it, with, within within an hour it was uh, of the first one going off. Um, we, it it was being reported then that it was a terrorist offence, and and where our offices were, we were um, the exhibits, the uh, forensic management team, the FMT, uh, were above us. Um And they were starting to put all their kit together and organize uh, their teams up there uh, To go out to the scene so we knew then that it was uh, um, It was a serious uh, yeah. event. That we knew happened.
3: fairly quickly didn't we Graham uh, uh, you know, it started off the very early initial news reports were that there was a major Power outage because this underground system was starting to shut down Uh and, and then it became very obvious very early on. Uh, so uh, the, the old SO-13 controller, of the yard would have known quite early uh, that it was a terrorist attack and then they'd have started cascading everybody out. Uh, so I, I think our office, kind of because we would, involved with digital forensics and at that point there wasn't very much we offered assistance and did what we could and we had people from the office going and actually helping out at the scenes and things like that but uh and one of the things that's very very important in these situations is scene management uh you know you're going to have a very high level plan and the very high level plan i think for this operation was uh, protection of life and property, uh, maximizing the evidential opportunities, return London to normal condition. Uh, so the, the protection of life and property is the first thing that happens. So, you know, it was the people who had survived were the number one uh, priority. Uh, that was more of a priority than the evidential opportunities. But once that phase is over, it's 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 man- scene management. Uh, so we got involved in stuff like that early on. Des-
0: describe describe also um, r- real quick, Steve. I'm sorry. Um, wh- what was the concern about a follow-on attack? I mean, had you did you have any indication of who was responsible at that time? And then also, what was your level of concern? Is that uh, this may be the first stage of a two-stage, you know, uh, attack of some kind?
3: uh the concern obviously is always going to be is this the start of a campaign uh so you had four people who were dead they were identified fairly early on from documentation that they had on them um and the other thing about this was this was the first suicide attack in the uk it hadn't happened prior to this there had been a number of U.K. citizens involved in suicide attacks or attempted suicide attacks elsewhere. People like Richard Reed, the shoe bomber. Right. Uh, and Wasn't there a bombing at an Israeli um, cafe? or? A... Uh, there was one in Tel Aviv called Mike's Place. There was a, right. a bar immediately next door to the American embassy when it was on the beach in Tel Aviv and uh, there was a suicide bomb uh, went in there and detonated a device, and he was from North London. There was another person with him who ended up dead who was from North London as well. So these people were bad, but it had never happened in the UK. And due to the locations of them, it looked like the most likely scenario is that they'd actually travelled to King's Cross Station, which is a real big transport hub, And all the lines and the bus route involved uh, actually went through King's Cross. So the theory was that they'd travelled to King's Cross and gone from there. And actually, the explosion, just short of Russell Square Station, the train hadn't got to the first station, if that was the case. And people were saying, oh, look, this one could well be uh, what we would call an own goal, where they'd accidentally blown themselves up. And this was an evidential opportunity. Uh, And then the realisation suddenly happened that, no, that's not the case at all. This was a suicide attack. So then the object of the exercise is, is this an ongoing uh, campaign? And do we have the totality of the conspiracy uh, with the dead people? Uh, And uh, it's all off from there.
0: Hey, everyone. That was a great part one. Again, my friends, Alan and Graham, they just did tremendous work. There's a lot more information coming in part two. So make sure you stick around for that. That will be coming out on Thursday, part two of episode 11. I also want to make sure that you guys take advantage of Patreon, patreon.com slash game of crimes. Murph and I, the Murph man and I have put together a lot of content. In fact, we just got through doing our case of the month we take you inside a well-known case, but give you information, I guarantee you, you probably didn't have before. And so we're going to be adding that to our Patreon, so go visit us at patreon.com slash Game of Crimes. We've got bonus content, we've got uh, Q&A. We actually put movies, TV series, you name it, anything that's police cop related, we can put through the narco meter, and Murph and I will give you our thoughts about it. So everybody stay tuned, coming up part two of episode 11 with my friends from New Scotland Yard and the train bombings in London on July 7th, 2005.